fear appears so much bigger when it's right in front of you right now but on the long run regret regret weighs far heavier than fear and so in the moment you've got to keep asking yourself if i don't if not now when this is brave new girl podcast and we share real stories with real impact i'm your host lou hamilton and i'm a filmmaker author and artist and passionate about storytelling for making a positive difference in the world Your story matters. It tells of who you are and why you do what you do in the service of others. And my guests bring you their stories, their highs and lows and courage gained along the way. Join us for the ride. My guest this week is Shah Wasmund, entrepreneur, public speaker and the author of three number one best-selling books. Awarded an MBE by the Queen for services to business and entrepreneurship, she's also named one of the UK's top 20 influential entrepreneurs by the Sunday Times. The 10th anniversary new edition of Stop Talking, Start Doing is now WH Smith's Book of the Month. Welcome, Shah, to Brave New Girl Podcast. Hi, Shah, how are you? I am very good. Thanks, my love. How are you doing? I'm good. Congratulations on your book launch. Oh, I'm so excited. I genuinely can't believe that 10 years later, the subject matter is still as relevant as ever, if not more so. We can talk about that in a little bit. And that it has gone straight into the charts. I mean, that is pretty extraordinary. Book of the month for WH Smith. Yes, book of the month for WH Smith, which I think is I mean, I I would feel that was an accolade at any point in time. But the, again, the fact that it's the 10th anniversary edition, so it's been 10 years since this book came out originally. That said, we did do a 60% rewrite. So there's 60% new content, which is amazing because it, it means that it's just, it's a fully updated book. But the topic of procrastination and how to get out of our own way, I just think never goes out of fashion. But in 10 years, a lot has changed, not least that there's been a global pandemic and two years of complete upheaval for most people at a time where where we were kind of all brought to a grinding halt how have you changed the book to address the kind of the new world that we face ourselves with and a global recession looming and you know a completely different way of thinking and doing and being well to be honest at the time of publication uh, or I should say at the time of print, because print and publication aren't the same thing, there's actually probably a good three-month gap between the two. So at the time of print, we weren't actually in a recession. <laughs> and also you've got to be careful because talking about a recession in a book would really date a book. So you've got to be very, you know, you, you've got to be considered in the topics that you talk about and the way that you talk about them. And ironically for me, although we did, of course, reference the pandemic, that would be foolhardy not to. I don't personally believe that the pandemic in itself, or even all the upheaval that we've been through as a society over the last two years, is actually the greatest challenge for us when it comes to procrastination. I actually think the greatest challenge and the thing that's made the biggest difference and has become the biggest hurdle in the last 10 years is our obsession our addiction to technology because it is now actually easier than ever before to procrastinate like you don't need an excuse you don't even need to you you can be procrastinating without even realizing you're doing it now and lots of us can wrap up that procrastination and call it work oh i'm just researching oh i'm just doing this i'm just i'm just i'm just but when you are spending so many hours of your working life attached to a device 
it is so easy to not realize and to not be intentional with how you're spending those hours. And that is procrastinating at an Olympic level. So for me, the single biggest difference over the last 10 years has been the increase in the amount of time that we all spend, not just online, but on our devices, like almost physically attached to our phones. Now, of course, we all had phones 10 years ago. I'm not you know, talking about the 1990s, but 10 years ago, we used social media in a very different way. It was social media, right? We went there to be, it wasn't live our entire lives online media, which is what it is today. We live our whole lives online. We spend all our waking hours online. We work online. We're at a computer all the time. And so going back to the pandemic, the one thing that the pandemic obviously did was make more and more and more of us be online more because we couldn't physically meet in person. So we were always on Zoom calls and we had to learn how to work from home. The whole entire world had to learn how to work from home. And there are many, 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 many good things to that. However, you know, Zoom fatigue is now real and the procrastination that comes from that is also, we spend so much time spending our time unintentionally. And and that is the killer, okay? So when we've got all these hopes and dreams of things that we want to do and places we want to go to and, and, and all the travel and all of the things, they all get either affected, interrupted, postponed because we procrastinate on doing something that's going to get us closer to those, those goals, those hopes, those dreams. And the reason that we do that some of the reasons are evergreen, self-sabotage, getting in our own way. So that hasn't changed. So the reasons why we procrastinate aren't really that different, to be honest. I'm not sure they'll be different in 10 years from now. But what is different is just how easy it is for us to not only procrastinate, but make that procrastination look and seem and appear like it's work when it's not. I want to dig deeper into what it actually means to stop talking and start doing. But first of all, to give some context, I interviewed you as now three years ago on this podcast and we went into your story. And so listeners can listen to the full story on that episode. But just to give some context to why you wrote this book and why it's important to you. Can we look back to your childhood and think about whether there were any clues to the kind of child that you were to the woman and the entrepreneur that you've become in terms of being an action taker and being somebody that feels quite driven to do? Yeah, I think we can look at the positive and the negative. So we'll, we'll, we'll reverse. We'll look at the negative. There's a brilliant book called The Post-Traumatic Growth Syndrome. And I've been through huge amounts of trauma in my life, not just as a child, but also as an adult. And when you look at the, I think there are seven key traumas in life that they include, you know, substance abuse, they include divorce, they include death, they include, I mean, there's seven key factors, key, and I've been through five of them. And, and I went through five of them, you know, like by the time I was 30 or something, you know, pretty close to it. And as a result of that, somebody who suffers from post-traumatic growth has a tendency. It, it's not like the richer cousin to PTSD. It's not like it's any better. It's not like, you know, the A-star version of it. It's just a different manifestation of the same symptoms. But what happens is 
you go through huge growth spurts, like you just focus on constantly going. So for me, without any question, my ability to take massive action is a superpower and I'm very grateful for it, but it's partly driven through trauma, through my real uncomfortableness of doing nothing of because when I do nothing, I feel out of control. And when I feel out of control, that triggers trauma responses. So I never want to feel out of control. I I, I mean, I, I drive my family mad because especially my partner, I get up at 5.30 every day on a Sunday, I get up at 5.30. I get up, I wake up without an alarm clock. I'm 5.30 on a Sunday, I'm awake and I'll lie there and I'll try really hard for 10, 15 minutes to go back to sleep. And I never can do it. I'm just like, I'm getting up. And he's like, I don't understand. It's a Sunday. Why are you getting up at like 5.38 in the morning? I'm like, because I'm going to get stressed. And he's like, L- just listen to it. What are you talking about? I said, yeah, but everybody's different, right? You want to sleep? Go sleep. I don't want to sleep. I want to go do something. And I'm actually going to lie here getting stressed. Like if I have to lie in bed on a Sunday, it makes me feel stressed. I don't want, that's not my enjoyment. I don't want to do that. I don't know what I do want to do. It's not necessarily that I want to go work. I might want to go run on my Peloton. I might want to go read a book. I might, you know, I might want to go walk five miles and grab a coffee. But I just, I I really find it uncomfortable doing nothing. I've just been listening to a podcast with Stephen Bartlett and Gabo Mate. Yeah. And he was talking about this and he was saying himself because he had been through trauma as a child and he's now in his 70s and Stephen Bartlett asked him, you know, is there is there any area in his life that he still finds really difficult? And he said exactly that, that that he can't sit with himself and find peace and that that is still the biggest challenge for him. And that's, you know, work in progress for him, that he does want to be able to do that, but still finds it very difficult. But then for you, you've been a kind of trailblazer in being able to use that need to keep going and keep working and keep doing and turn it into a superpower. I've got a list here of all the amazing things that you've done. You know, you became the first licensed female boxing manager at the age of 21, 22. You started your own PR agency and helped build Dyson from uh, Sir James Dyson's kitchen table. There was a business with Sir Bob Geldof. You built Smarter, helping 12 million people into business and grew an active online and community of over 500,000 small businesses. That's just the kind of headliners. So you are the expert in doing. And I think that the thing that tends to stop people doing is fear. I wonder whether even though you have been able to put one foot in front of the other, no matter what's come your way, have you ever felt fear? And was it that experience of feeling fear and deciding to do it anyway, that gave you the ability to learn and evolve techniques to then help others to be able to beat their fear? It's a great question. I have a very, I would consider it, let me take it back a step. So I think one of the great things is being self-aware and that takes time and maturity. So it took me quite a while to become as self-aware as I am today. So today I am conscious that there are env- there are certain environments where I can actually just be happy by myself or with myself or with other people doing nothing. But they are not at home. It's not in my office. It's not in my house. 
and this is just who I am. So some people think that, you know, I haven't just made this up because it, it would be a good thing to make up. But the truth is, is that when I'm on holiday is the only time that I can really switch off because I have to be out of my environment. So I don't have to be on holiday in Barbados, although that obviously helps. But even if I'm out of my own home and I'm staying in a hotel somewhere for two days or I'm going to somewhere in the UK, it doesn't it's not necessarily about some great big luxurious, you know, expensive holiday. That's not the point. The point is if I'm in my environment where I know there are things to do, I find it almost impossible to do nothing. But if you take me out of my environment where I don't have anything to do, I can do nothing. And I've also realized, you know, that I find it hard to meditate as much as I've tried and tried and tried and tried. And so rather than beat myself up and, and listening to just one more course and one more expert trying to tell me, I've decided I'm just going to give up because it doesn't work for me. However, there are two things that do work for me. Running without any music is like an active meditation and that does work for me. But my favorite, and this is, you know, and this probably gives me a good excuse for having more holidays, but my favorite way of calming my mind and coming up with my best ideas and really getting myself into that place where I'm able to make really good decisions about things without being in the weeds and without always feeling like I've got to be doing and working is swimming outside by myself in a hot country. I don't know, you cold weather people who do this cold weather swimming. So that's batshit crazy. I can't understand any of that. But put me in a hot climate with a pool, six o'clock in the morning, leave me in there for an hour swimming all by myself. It's the monotony of going up and down, up and down, up. I can't get distracted. I don't have music on. I can't look at anything. I can't check my phone. So it's almost like my self-awareness is, okay, Shah, these are the forced environments that we need to put you in for you to be able to, to have that downtime. And that's just who you are. So the more you try to fight against it, it's just, you know, I'm 50. I'm not going to change that now. So this is who I am. I just go, I take 17 weeks holiday a year now. So the important thing is for each and every one of us to understand how to not do and also how to do when we need to. And that's a different challenge for each and every one of us because we each have our own fears. We each have our own challenges. And one of the things that many people, if not most people, have had at some point in their life is some massive sort of pain point that paralyzes them that brings them to a complete halt and they feel like I can't move I don't know how to move from from this moment on this question is in two parts really so the first is have you had those moments where you have felt completely paralyzed and what was that like for you as somebody that is so capable at doing and moving and gaining momentum I think the reality is that we're all human. None of us are robots or perfect. And I've had, I, of course, I've had those moments and I've had more than one of those moments. And when I have those moments, I find it really challenging because it's not in my DNA to suddenly, so, so I find it very alien. And I, it's even, in a way, it's almost even more uncomfortable because for some people doing nothing, they feel comfortable because they know they're safe. If they don't do anything, they're gonna stay safe. 
But for me, doing nothing means I'm unsafe. So actually, I feel like it's almost like, you know, to, to, to visualize it, I feel like if you imagine the African plains and you've got a gazelle and, and the gazelle is just standing there and all the li- the lions are around. That's how I feel when I don't do anything. That That's how I feel. I feel like I'm super vulnerable. If I'm not moving, I'm vulnerable. But when I'm constantly moving, I'm like, well, no one can, you know, no one's going to catch up with me. Because I'm, I'm just, I'm just keep on moving. So no one's going to catch up with me. And I think this is really important because it, it understands we, we all have individual psyches. We all have individual backgrounds and traumas and triggers and things that, that impact us. And in my book, one of the key things for me was that I wanted to write a book that was super practical, that gave people real actionable tips and is written in such a way that it's what I would call inhalable content. You can pick it up at, you know, a bookstore, at a train station. And by the time you've got off a two, three hour train journey, you've read it. Or you can pick it up at the airport and fly to Barcelona and you'll have read it. Or you've got, you know, a 30 minute trip. You can dive into it and read one or two chapters and still get stuff out of it. And the reason I wrote it the way I did, and it's, it's quite visual as well with graphics and things is because I understand how our brains work and how our memories work and how they serve us and how they don't serve us. And one of the things is when you have a lot of text in a book, it's really easy to forget stuff. So I'm always trying to write with the reader in mind, not to win a book a prize, but to actually make an impact on the reader, to actually empower the reader. So I'm not the guru. I just want to give tools to the reader to help them stop talking and start doing. And the greatest thing I can say is it's that first step. It's about the momentum. So how can you make sure that you're taking that first step? How can you set the, you know, set the cards up in your favor to make that first step? Because once you take the first step, that's the hardest step. But then in the book, I give, you know, tons of of tips and advice and, and support around once you've started, how to make sure that you continue because momentum is the greatest thing to take in action, right? I always say you've you've got to weigh up fear and regret and you've got to leave regret for some other sucker because when you get back to the end of your life, you're not going to look, you're going to regret the things you didn't do, not the things you did do. And fear appears so much bigger when it's right in front of you right now. But on the long run, regret, regret weighs far heavier than fear. And so in the moment, you've got to keep asking yourself, if I don't, if not now, when, if not now, when? And I really dive into some of the key things that have helped me stop my procrastination. Because the irony is, you know, we sold, oh, I can't remember, well over 100,000 copies of the book, okay? And the irony is that my form of self-sabotage is procrastination. So I wrote the book for myself as well. So even though I am a massive action taker, I know that when I'm self-sabotaging, when I'm getting in my own way, I know that I'm procrastinating. So when I see myself procrastinating, I'm like, oh, you're doing it again, Shah. Why are you doing this, Shah? Because this isn't, you know, this isn't how you are naturally. So you're doing this to self-sabotage. So then I can take a check of myself. And and what I would say to, to everyone listening and I mean, hopefully you guys are going to go and buy the book. I, w- I would highly recommend it, of course. But I think it, it, it was the number one best-selling book, business book, I should say, in WH Smith for 14 months in a row. So that means it broke all of their records and that record still stands today. 
So why am I saying that? Am I saying that to be a braggadocious twat? No, I'm not. I'm saying it because it demonstrates how many of us, including myself, struggle with having all these things that we want to do and not doing them. And actually ended up doing stuff that we don't want to do that takes our time from doing the things that we want to do. So the themes of the procrastination and getting in our own way, they affect all of us, all of us, every one of us. And I think that paralysis and procrastination and the way that you talk about being able to step out of that by taking that first step. And I've been in a very a time in my 40s when I was in a very deep depression. And I, I remember there were times when I would say to myself, all you have to do is get up off the sofa. Just do that. And the moment I'd done that, I could then go, okay, now the next step is you're going to go and wash up building up and you talk about that really beautifully in the book and you show how people can just take that one step one after another to build the momentum and i think sport is a very good analogy for for this kind of ability to to make progress and to be productive and i heard somebody last week talking about learning to do weightlifting and they were saying you start where you are and then you do a little bit more than you did yesterday or than you did last week. And I just love that because it just, it, you know, it's all our capability is, is where we are now. And we all have the ability to move to that just little next step from where we are. We, we absolutely do. And no, you, you don't you don't run a marathon the first time you go running, right? Or, or, or I, 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 would, I would say I, d I don't think many people would, right? And I certainly know that I couldn't. And even... Though I'm a massive action taker, I also have massive periods of procrastination and self-sabotage. So this book isn't written for people to be like me and, and you know, take the kind of monumental action on a daily basis 24-7. And it's not written to tell people that they all have to get up at 5.30 a.m. and they should never lie in bed on a Sunday. Not at all. That's my thing. It doesn't have to be anybody else's thing. This book is written for everybody who has got something that they want to do, that has a dream that is currently unfulfilled, that knows that, that this isn't it, that, that there is more for them and life, and that they've got those goals and dreams and aspirations, and they've probably had them for a while. And they're holding themselves back from actually taking the action to, to turn those dreams into reality. For some people, it might be to set up their own business. For other people, it might be to move to the south of France. It might even be to run a marathon. But if we don't start, if we don't stop talking about the things that we want to do and actually start doing them, the reality is we'll never do them. I'm a big believer in imperfect action will always win the day. So one of the things that stops people is thinking that they have to have everything perfect before they do everything or before they do anything. So I call it the if then when syndrome. If this happens, then I do that. When my kids go to school, then I'll be able to do that, right? The if then when then. So if this happens, then I'll be able to do that. If I get the job, then I'll be able to do that. If I win the client, then I'll be able to do that. When this happens, then I'll be able to do that. But what happens is that just keeps pushing what you really want to do off into some future date of which more often than not, you don't have a lot of control over.
And I see this a lot with people, especially women, I've got to be honest, they keep putting new hurdles in front of them that are about qualifications. So when I've got this qualification, then I'll be able to apply for that job. When I've been in the job for two years, then I'll be able to apply for a promotion. When I've just done this one more course, just one more course, and then I'll have the confidence to do it. But there's always one more, right? There's always one more. And I just think it's ironic because I'm pretty sure that, you know, when you look at the stats, a man will be in a job six months and he's already eyeing up his next promotion. And a woman's thinking, oh, I can't even think about that until I've been in my job for two years and proved myself. Right, so the way that men and women think differently also impacts how much action they take. Because men typically, and this is the generalization, men typically don't need to wait for things to be perfect before they take action. Whereas women tend to want everything to, and that's partly confidence-based, right? But the more confident a woman is, the more likely she'll take imperfect action because she knows that if it doesn't work out, it doesn't mean that she hasn't worked out. It just means that one thing didn't work out. And even when that one thing doesn't work out, it is very rarely the whole thing didn't work out. It's just like a part of the thing didn't go according to plan, right? So for example, if you launch a new business or you launch a new product or, or a new book, right? Let's take a book. If you launch a new book and you don't sell 100,000 copies, is it because the book's not very good? Well, let's let, let's unpack that. You know, women will tend to go automatically, well, you know, I was rubbish. That wasn't a great book. Well, if you think about it, how many times was J.K. Rowling turned down? Okay, so when we unpack this, this is how it goes. You launch something, you launch a book, and it doesn't sell as many as you want it to sell. Is it your fault? The author, you're just not good enough? Nine out of 10 times, that is rarely the case. One out of 10 times, it probably is. But nine out of 10 times, your cover design wasn't very good. The title wasn't very catching. People don't even get to your content. So if they're not buying the book, they don't even know how good your content is because they're not buying the book. So actually the interesting thing is if you're not making any sales, it's definitely not about your content because people aren't reading it. It's about the marketing. So you didn't get your sales and marketing message right. Or, or you didn't have it in a bookshop and the bookshops, or if you did have it in a bookshop, they weren't promoting it. Or it was in a bookshop, but your book cover was really terrible. Like, for example, my previous book, when it was published in America, it was, we did terrible sales because the book cover was so horrific that no matter what I said, no matter what my publisher at Penguin in the UK said, they wouldn't listen to us because they knew better. And we were both like, oh my God. And I, I literally got to the point and I said, I want this... I want this recorded in the minutes of, of this meeting that I will not be responsible for book sales with that cover on it. I said, that cover is absolutely awful. No one is going to pick that book up. And because I'm not famous in the state, nobody knows me as an author in America, then not going to just come looking for the next Charles Wasman book. So people are going to stumble upon it because they see it on a shelf somewhere. And that's how a lot of authors get started. But with that cover, no one's going to stumble upon that. They're just going to ignore it. And lo and behold, you know, we, we our sales in the UK were astonishingly good and dismal in the US. So when you unpack something, what I'm trying to point out here is it's very rarely, it's, it's never that you didn't work. And it's almost never that the thing didn't work. Somewhere in the process, something didn't work. Maybe one or two things didn't work, but it's never the whole thing. There's things to learn from when it didn't go right for moving forward next time you do something. 
And I, what I love in your book is you talk about purpose and that when you think about something bigger than yourself, that helps you to get through that kind of fear or procrastination or whatever that thing is that's stopping you. And, and I had a very sort of good example of that this year. I was, I had this itch and you talk about having an itch for running and I felt that I could run, but I kept getting injured for years. I just kept getting injured. And this year I decided, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to go right back to basics. I'm going to do couch to 5k as if I'd never run before in my life. And I had shitty trainers, did the couch to 5k, rewarded myself with some proper trainers, got the next app, 5k to 10k did that then so I'm on a trustee on the Dylan Strong Foundation and I said you know what if I ran for you I could make myself do a half marathon so from 10k I added a mile a week until it got to the Ealing half marathon and I ran that half marathon and all the time I was absolutely hating it I was like I'm not a runner this is not something that I want to be doing for the rest of my life but I'm doing it for Dylan. And that phrase I actually had running through my head as a mantra every step. What I found was that when the the actual half marathon was a nightmare, hated it, got to the end. And just as I was coming to the end, somebody said only 100 meters to go. And something triggered in my mind because I was a, a sprinter when I was a kid. And I was like, I can do that. I can do 100 meters. And from that second I sprinted the last hundred meters having been absolutely nearly dead on my knees and what I discovered in the doing of that in the whole doing of this this thing that was for a bigger purpose was for for this charity was that no I didn't want to be a run, long distance runner but what I loved was sprinting and that I could do that and I think that you know you talk about that in your book is that you can have a dream and you work towards it you have a higher purpose and then you'll discover things along the way that you hadn't even imagined. Exactly. But you've got to be on the journey to see it. And I think that taking action is like a muscle. So the more you use it, the stronger it gets. And that also means that when you have setbacks, you've got a built-in muscle that's like, oh, sorry, I can cope with that. I can cope with that. It's okay, we can go again. And I think that's the beauty of it. But But the reality is we have one life. We have one life. As far as we're aware, as far as we can prove, we have one life. And our job is to live it well. And living it well means doing our utmost to fulfill our potential. And fulfilling our potential isn't just about how much money we make or what career we have. It's about where we traveled and who we impacted and how many people's lives we, we blessed. And it's all of it. Our jobs in this lifetime are not to sit here talking about all the things that we wish we could do. Our jobs are to get to the end of our lives and tell our kids and our grandkids and our godchildren all the things that we've done. If you were to rip up the system and start again with the message that you have in your book, what was your vision for the future? Well, it depends. That's a very big question. Do you mean the educational system, the welfare system? Like what? I think in terms of what you're doing in the book, let's talk about the education system because if what you've talked about was taught in schools, wouldn't it be a different world? Well, you know, the reality is, I think that the education hasn't caught up to the world that we currently live in. And I think that's a real challenge. And I think that, you know, aside from the, I think that the, the kids should be coached in school, 
not not just for sport, but they should be coached for themselves. I think that we should, I think coaching should be democratized and coaching should be available to everybody. I think coaching should be available on the NHS. And actually, if coaching was available on the NHS, it would certainly help diminish the mental health crisis that we've got, not solve it, but diminish it, certainly to a pretty big degree. Because, you know, for me, a, a good coach is prevention and therapy is cure. So actually, why don't we have a bit more prevention so we don't have to have as much cure? Secondly, we don't talk about there's no financial education in schools. This is absolutely ridiculous. So we're going, how do you expect, my, my son's 16, he, he's fortunate because he lives in a different environment with different education. But how can we expect this young generation to be able to grow up understanding anything about money if we don't teach them anything about money, right? Because they live in this world where everything is on demand. Netflix on demand, it's on demand, everything's on demand. They don't have the same respect for money because actually everything is immediate. So it's instant gratification. I mean, I think that the core curriculum, I think there is actually super important to learn about history. So I don't think that the whole education system should be scrapped, but I think that we need to add elements into the educational system. And one of the, the, the beauties of, of Stop Talking, Start Doing, and it's kind of like a, a conundrum, the more you stop talking and start doing, the more confidence you have. The more confidence you have, the more you stop talking, start doing. So actually, they work perfectly hand in hand, right? So I, and, and then you have another one. That's consistency. So the more consistent you are, the more confident you become. The more confident you are, the more you stop talking, start doing. The more consistent you are with stopping talking, starting doing, the more confident you... And it's literally like an upward spiral, in light of that, how do you define courage? So for me, it, it, courage is doing the things that you want to do even when you don't feel like doing them. Thank you so much, Shah, for sharing with us the power of taking action over just dreaming and talking. I encourage all my listeners to pick up a copy of Shah's book and just as it says on the tin, stop talking and start doing. Thank you so much, Shah. Take care. Oh, thanks, darling. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Shah, for showing us how we can scratch that itch, pull our socks up and get doing that thing that's going to give us our best life. You can find out more about Shah's work on www.shah.com, buy her book, Stop Talking, Start Doing in all good booksellers and follow her on Instagram at Shah Wasmond. Thank you, Brave New Girl Media, for producing and sourcing the guests for the show. And to you for listening. I hope today's story inspires you to step into the spotlight and show how you too are positively impacting the world. Take care, choose courage, and see you next time. <laughs>